Hi, this is the Cancer Liberation Project podcast. If you've been touched by cancer and have some fear around remaining healthy, you are in the right place. As a 20-year-plus cancer survivor, Haley knows how unsettling it can be to not only hear the words, you have cancer, but also the uncertainty and fear that comes when you have been declared cancer-free. The Cancer Liberation Project was born out of Haley's desire to make cancer less scary for people, to give people hope that they can not only heal from cancer, but live their best, most vibrant life after cancer. Get ready to be inspired with your host, Haley Dubin. Hi, and welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. Today, I sit down with Brandon LaGreca. Brandon is a licensed acupuncturist in the state of Wisconsin and nationally certified in the practice of oriental medicine. In 2015, Brandon was diagnosed with stage 4 non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. He achieved full remission eight months later by following an integrative medicine protocol that included immunotherapy without the use of chemotherapy radiation, or surgery. Brandon is a thought leader in the synthesis of traditional and functional medicine. Having written numerous articles on the subject, he is the author of Cancer and EMF Radiation, How to Protect Yourself from the Silent Carcinogen of Electropollution, and Cancer, Stress, and Mindset, Focusing the Mind to Empower Healing and Resilience. He shares his thoughts at empoweredpatientblog.com. I look forward to sharing my conversation with Brandon, but before I do, just a couple of things to mention. First, a reminder to head over to my website at revivewellness.com to get your free seven top tips to keep cancer away and feel confident in your body again. That's R-E-V-I-V-E wellness.com. And second, I want to take a moment to thank the Carl Felt Center, who makes the show possible. Hi, Brandon. Welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. I'm really looking forward to this conversation with you today. Hi, Haley. It's an honor to be on with you. Yeah, well, I first just really wanted to hear a little bit about you and your journey with cancer. Sure. So I had a 2015 non-Hodgkin's lymphoma diagnosis, and it was a stage four diagnosis because I got a bone marrow biopsy and my bone marrow was positive for lymphoma cells. So I have a subtype, which is uh, diagnosed as follicular lymphoma. And it's typically a cancer diagnosis that we see in people in their seventies and eighties, but I was diagnosed with it when I was 32 years old. So that was a pretty big shock to the system, to say the least. And what got me into the hospital to be diagnosed in the first place, because up to that point, I thought I was living as healthy life as I could, was I was having recurrent episodes of abdominal pain. And it turns out that um, I was having episodes of a small bowel obstruction, which was being caused by all these lymph tumors, which were in my abdomen, the biggest of which I believe was about four inches. And it was cutting off my small intestine to the point where that bowel obstruction was ending up with severe pain, get to the ER, get a CT scan, and they see all this lymph enlargement. And that's when I was diagnosed. My goodness. So yeah, that was 2015. So that's, you know, 
seven, eight years ago now. Yeah. And you, you were very young and you were practicing Chinese medicine then, right? Yeah. Right. I I had already been 10 years in private practice at that point. Amazing. So, you know, obviously you begin to question and I'm sure you did a lot of research. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm curious if you felt pressure by the oncology world to do a lot of conventional treatments. How did you navigate that? That was a challenge. So the pressure came predominantly because I was symptomatic. And this kind of cancer, at least that I was diagnosed with, is a very slow-growing cancer, and and which is called indolent, right? It means it's just kind of slow-growing. And if they even catch it incidentally, they might just do what's called the wait and watch approach, which they'll just identify that the cancer is there and not even treat it until it starts producing symptoms because there isn't a whole lot treatment-wise. At least there's nothing curative, at least from the conventional oncology perspective. So I did get a sizable push from the conventional model with which to start basically the the big guns right away. And that's simply because um, there was a risk of me frankly dying from a small bowel obstruction, you know, and, and which people do. So, you know, the thought was what's called high dose or induction chemotherapy, which just means let's hit it hard, hit it fast. The regimen that was proposed to me was called RCHOP. The R stands for rituxan, which is an immunotherapy drug. And the CHOP stands for two, three different chemotherapy agents plus prednisone. It is you know, a pretty strong treatment. And the thought was, well, we can hopefully shrink these tumors and you know, a few weeks at least. So we're out of this danger zone of, you know, having another small bowel obstruction. So I had to do a lot of thinking about that because obviously here I am 32. I am at least trying to be a model of health. I'm really invested in holistic and integrative models of health. And I knew that that option existed and I could do that, but I knew I would have regretted it if I did not try to do things my way first. And by my way, I mean it's a combination of conventional oncology plus all the integrative approaches that I had kind of tangentially known about through my career. Now, at this point, of course, I'm calling everyone I know in terms of my colleagues, naturopathic oncologists, other acupuncturists, you know, holistic-minded physicians, and I'm starting to kind of flesh out what an integrative program might look like for me. So when it was all said and done, I turned to my oncologist and I said, here's what I want to try. You know, obviously that we have this one immunotherapy drug that has an excellent track record. It's it's been used for decades. It's very low risk in terms of side effects, this drug called rituximab. And it helps to lower tumor burden. Are you okay with trying that? See my response. And then if I need to go to the higher dose induction chemotherapy as a as a second line of treatment. To his credit, he agreed to it. And my reflection on that is I think he agreed to it simply because he didn't have a whole lot of other options to offer me. Okay. He, he had nothing to offer me that was curative for instance. So the only thing that they really can do with this kind of cancer subtype is to try to knock it into remission and keep you in durable remission, which is to say, we'll keep you there for as long as we can until it reoccurs again. And then we have to move on to the next line of treatment. So I almost want to think in the psychology of it is, in his mind, perhaps we know we're not going to cure this guy. We'll just let him try this. Maybe he responds great, and we can always have this as a plan B down the low, down the road. And that's kind of how I pitched it to him. 
And again, to his credit, he he went along with it. Now, you have to understand, I did not tell him the majority of all the other things I was planning in terms of an integrative approach. Those were kind of between me and my other doctors. And some people would think I would be remiss not mentioning that. But I also have you know, my own research, my own history, and I'm being my own advocate at this point. So my decision at that point was to just to do several sessions of this protection drug. And we did once a week for I believe a month, so four treatments in a row, and got a follow-up scan. Turns out I had about a 30% reduction in tumor burden, which was great. Take it. But at that point, I kicked my protocol into high gear, all of the different things that I'd researched. And also at that point, because I think we wanted to space out treatments, I ended up going on one dose of this chemotherapy drug, which was an IV infusion, every two months. So I had another three treatments of that in the two month intervals. So that took me all the way out to November of 2015. I was diagnosed in February of 2015, had seven sessions of that immunotherapy drug. And by November of 2015, I had a clean PET scan, was completely in remission. That's amazing. So great. And, you know, I'm wondering how did you decide what treatments to do? Because I know people I work with they want to do these integrative therapies, but there is so much out there and they are so overwhelmed. How do you choose? That's a fantastic question. And we can spend hours talking about that. So I have a, a nuanced answer and that is I would do a couple of things. Okay. One of them is to find your people. What's Who's your team and who are the people who you trust in terms of their experience with treating cancer patients? That includes a conventional oncologist because remember, I'm not throwing out the baby with the bathwater. In this case, I greatly benefited from this one chemotherapy drug, immunotherapy drug, I should say. So find someone who you trust, who you really jive with, and that includes within the integrative model as well, whether that be a naturopathic oncologist, whether that be an integrative-minded functional medicine doctor, Chinese medicine practitioner, so on and so forth. So once you find your team, they will at least help you narrow down from the multitude of options, which are very clearly overwhelming, as as you well know, to what things probably make the most sense for you, your constitution, and your cancer subtype. Because all this has to be individualized, right? It's all about the terrain of the body and how we're supporting that. So what's going to be good for person A is maybe not going to be so good for person B. So yes, you can do your own research and you could present that to your providers and get a sense of what makes the most sense for me. So that's the left brain approach, right? Just try to figure things out, narrow it down. However, there's a second lens with which I like to discuss, which is the right brain approach is, you know, once you have all these options in front of you, you've narrowed it down. I think the single most important thing any cancer patient or any patient for any disease for that matter should do is get into an intuitive place about where they want to go next. And I think that takes getting into a quiet place where you look at those options and you just really try to feel out what makes sense, like what feels right to you. And the reason why is because I think of all these options that are presented, you know, maybe a half dozen of them are really good ideas, maybe even more. And at some point it just becomes a, an issue of how much money do you have, you know, and time and resources to throw out all this. And so I think it really becomes do I get into a clear place and have a sense almost on a spiritual level, what really makes sense for me? I am unapologetic about this approach because I think this is really super key just for life in general, let alone, you know, recovery from cancer. I think we, we underplay the, um, 
the ability of that kind of intuitive approach to really inform, you know, a lifelong approach. And this is something you know, we can dovetail into this if you wish, which I call, you know, the anti-cancer mindset. How do we align ourselves by how we think and feel about um, our diagnosis, the treatment options in front of us, that we really follow suit, that we really kind of stay lockstep march with the direction that we need to go. And so I don't discount one or the other. I think we really have to have um, a kind of synergy with both of these approaches. Yeah, that's such a great point. And I do want to talk about the anti-cancer mindset, but I'm just wondering because I've heard people say, how do I know how to listen to my gut? Yeah. I mean, do you feel like it's that calmness you have when you think of doing something, it just feels right? Is it a joyful feeling? Is it you know, it, because people really have trouble listening to their gut. I think it could be all of those things. I will tell you my quick and dirty way how I explain to patients the difference between a thought and an intuition. And to me, thoughts happen in your own language. So whatever your native language is, is in, in, for instance, English for us as we're speaking right now. When you think thoughts, they come through in a stream of consciousness that's one word after the other, Okay. Intuition is more like a feeling. It's like a whole complete concept just downloaded all at once. And often it is it is it it comes with that kind of feeling or emotion like this just feels right. Now, everyone tends to know what that feels like on the negative side because everyone can have a gut instinct like that doesn't feel good. I shouldn't walk through that door or I shouldn't drive down that road. But it's equally as applicable for a positive feeling like this just feels something about this really feels good. Now, easy ways to practice that. Food is a great example. I'm a big proponent that everyone on an individual level needs to customize their diet, right? Same thing, same approach. Have a, a good left brain rational approach to what makes sense for me, but then almost on a day-to-day level, what feels right right now? What what are my what's my body telling me even in terms of a craving? You know, do I need this particular food right now? I need a ton of it, right? So the more that we do that and hone that skill, the better off we're going to, you know, we end up being. And so what I would just tell people is get a sense that it's all of a sudden it just, it just hit me like this just feels right to do this thing. And that could be walking on the beach for 30 minutes a day for all I know, right? And it doesn't have to be, you know, specific to a cancer therapy. It could just be, I need to call my mom right now. I just need to hear her voice. I need to go to bed early tonight, right? Those are all just different permutations of how we should be listening to our intuition. Well, thank you. That's very, very helpful. So in your book, Cancer, Stress, and Mindset, you write about the anti-cancer mindset, which you just mentioned. Can you just explain more about it? What is that kind of mindset that someone should have? Sure. So I differentiate, and this is kind of in the mindset literature, so to speak, the difference between a fixed and a growth mindset. And a fixed mindset is just going into something with a sense of you're going to externalize your choices or externalize your decisions. So a good example of that with what we're discussing would be someone who goes to an oncologist saying, this is just something that's happening to me. I don't want to think about it and just fix me. Do whatever it takes. I don't want to be engaged in the process. In that way, we're almost like a car getting dropped off at a mechanic, you know, just do whatever you need to do. And that's very different than what a growth mindset is, which is to say, 
I am going to become engaged to the process in the process. I am going to try to learn from the process and I'm trying to grow stronger and better on the other side of it. So with something like cancer, and that's one of the things I often ask my cancer patients is how are you going to become a stronger, more empowered person on the other side of this diagnosis? What does that look like for you? And then therefore, how does that influence your choices and your your ability to stick to those choices, to make really lifetime or lifelong, you know, changes to your whole approach, right? And so it's that, that's where I think the rubber hits the road is when you have a growth mindset, you, it enables you to say, this is my vision for myself. I play a role in this. I'm going to take a leadership role in this and I'm going to make it happen. Now, it's interesting because listening to you, I definitely feel like I when I was going through cancer, that I did have that growth mindset, but it was innate. I mean, it's not something I learned, but I think you can learn it, right? I mean, someone like you asking your patients these questions, Mm -hmm. it could be learned. It doesn't have to be a natural kind of thing. Yeah, it absolutely can be cultivated and you can do so in one word, which is motivation. Okay. And it's going to be different things for different people. So I had a very clear motivation when I was diagnosed, which is I had a two-year-old daughter at home and I could not tolerate the thought of her not growing up with a father. That was just completely and utterly unacceptable to me. Now, I'm saying that on one hand and on the other hand, realizing with complete and utter acceptance that anything can happen anytime. I'd, I'd already been throwing this massive curveball and fate be as it may, you know, who knows what's going to happen. However, that's just a thought I can have, but it doesn't, I can't work with that. Right. So I can accept my situation, but at the same time, I can also start offering thoughts that are going to line me up towards where I want to go. So if my, if my objective right now is to see myself as a grandparent, and that is literally the, the guided imagery I used practically every morning for the first four years after my diagnosis is I, I sat in my meditation space and I saw myself as a grandparent. I knew if I did that, that I would well outlive my prognosis, okay? And so that was my motivation. Now, it could be very simple. You know, I could have a patient that comes in with shoulder pain for acupuncture and their main motivation is to play golf next summer. Great, that's fine, you know, whatever it is. But, you know, the to cultivate a, a mindset, that growth mindset, as we we're talking about, it does take, what's your end point? Where are we trying to get, right? Because that's your vision and then, all the choices we're going to make are going to line up with that vision, but it starts with having that first and foremost. So that's how you cultivate it. Got it. And you talk about stress in your book. How much of a contributor would you say that stress is in a cancer diagnosis? Yeah. So first of all, there are many different ways we could plummet our health. Um, when it comes to cancer, my, my very straightforward answer as to what causes cancer are carcinogens, which sounds like a cop-out answer. But to me, I think it's important to identify that there are definitely things that we are exposed to, which are at the root of cancer in terms of creating this damage to our body. Now, having said that, there are definitely many things which promote cancer once it's been initiated. And after all said and done, having written this book and done a lot of research into the subject, my personal belief is that stress, it is an absolute, very potent promoter of cancer. I hesitate to say that it's actually enough to be categorized as a true carcinogen. However, 
And here's a pretty major caveat. And this is the subject of my third book. I'm, I'm actively researching right now the contribution of trauma as an actual initiator of cancer and really to start the process. Um, so I don't have a mature you know, opinion on this yet, but I differentiate them by this. Trauma is something that causes a complete disassociation. You know, it's something where you check out and that can have very profound lifelong implications. Um, stress is, I would define more as kind of the day-to-day -day stuff, the thing that kind of wears us down. And most people know what that is because living in the Western world and Western lifestyles, we all tend to have at least some level of chronic stress that we have to you know, mitigate. And so it is from that perspective, yes, there are multiple mechanisms, and I explained the science of this, um, how stress contributes to promoting cancer from lowering our immune function to raising blood sugar to, you know, basically causing bad habits that tend to be carcinogenic. For instance, what a lot of people do when they stress, when well, they might, you know, smoke cigarettes or drink alcohol, those things are directly carcinogenic. So there's direct and indirect consequences from how we are coping with stress that in themselves could be, um, can be, you know, affecting us in that way. So it just is all this to say that just because something is only a promoter of cancer as opposed to initiator of cancer doesn't mean we should ignore it. I mean, that's a pretty major lever that we can pull for our overall health and wellness. So what I, what I tell people is, you know, looking at your cancer diagnosis, you may or may not ever figure out what caused your cancer. It's great if you can, if you can work on a root cause level and say, you know, for instance, if you have lung cancer and you've been smoking for 20 years, yeah, stop smoking. I mean, that's obvious. Everyone knows that. You may not have the luxury of that. You may not know, for instance, that you were, because you were exposed to this pesticide when you were five years old, how that played into your health decades later. However, we have great control and most people tend to know what are the things that are eroding their resilience, right? And so those are the things, these are the epigenetic factors that are disturbing the, the terrain, the microenvironment with which cancer grows. And I say, that's where we need to work, right? That's the soil of cancer. Who knows what the seed was? We can't change the weather, but we can change the soil. And that's kind of our job in terms of how we utilize these principles. The tumor is only a symptom of cancer, not the cause. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Carlfeld. I'm the owner of the Carlfeld Center in Meridian, Idaho. We specialize in cutting-edge integrative oncology care, addressing the cause and not just the symptom of cancer. There are 11 factors you need to address when diagnosed with cancer. To learn more of what they are, get my free ebook when you visit thecarlfoldcenter.com. Along with the ebook, I will email you a free webinar series where world-renowned specialists will tell you what you need to do to address these 11 factors. You'll hear from experts like Jane McLellan, Dr. Paul Anderson, Dr. Neil McKinney, Dr. William Lee, Dr. Nasha Winters, and Dr. Isaac Elias. Don't miss out on this life-saving information. I also offer a free 15-minute cancer consult where we can go over where you are at in your cancer journey and how the cutting-edge therapies we offer can benefit you. Give the Carful Center call at 208-338-8902 or visit our website at thecarfulcenter.com. I want to go back to what you were saying about trauma, because sometimes we don't even know, like you said, you could disassociate from it. So 
how do you deal with traumas that you that you have buried? I mean, is that something that you know a lot about now or, or you're just researching it now? Yeah, I'm in in phase with that at the moment. What I would say is you're absolutely right, first of all, is and traumas can happen pre-verbally, right? They can have they can happen in such uh, an early stage in childhood that there's not even the ability for that child to express what happened to them. And that can be so locked away in the memory that it's the most insidious in how it applies to us. What I'll say is most people have experienced trauma in their life. It's just a question of whether or not that has a you know, a long-term effect on us. So to put it another way, we all encounter traumatic events. It's just a question of whether they are traumatizing to us. And so if that, if you have at least any knowledge of a history of that, whether you were dissociated from whatever event that happened, could be like a major car accident, it could be some form of abuse. The very first step is to acknowledge that that happened. Okay. And then you have at least switching now into growth mindset, the ability to make choices as to how am I going to address that? And yes, I don't have that fully fleshed out in my mind yet. I mean, I think there are really two approaches that at least I'm identifying for my research currently. One of them is kind of like the top-down approach, you know, like therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy and such. So how do we think about or reframe the trauma that happened to us? And then there's the bottom-up approach, which I actually in some ways more interested and invested in, which is a lot of these things happen to us and we don't have a way that mentally we can override them because they're just they're so locked into our bodies. And so there's kind of the somatic way of dealing with them. And there's different therapies that deal with that, such as somatic experiencing or EMDR. And these are ones I'm actively kind of dabbling in at the moment to see how they might pan out. Yeah. I mean, it's so fascinating. And I think it's so important when it comes to cancer because we store our emotions in our bodies and a lot of people aren't addressing that. Yeah. And it's, I'm glad you brought that up because that's actually the lens that I'm taking in this next book, um, which is a little bit more of this traditional Chinese medicine approach where, you know, in, in, in TCM, we consider there's really only one major there's only really one cause of disease, which is living out of balance with nature and natural rhythms. And then if you were to, to drill down from that, we would say the yin and yang of disease ideology, which is there are things that come from the outside that affect us. So things like you know toxicants and toxins, and then there's things from the inside that affect us. And that would be our experience of the world. And that can be things like trauma and emotions. And the, the classes of Chinese medicine are very clear on this point. I mean, they say emotional stagnancy, uh, an emotion that's not expressed, an emotion that is lodged in the body, absolutely 100% is a cause of illness. And so what I'm going to attempt to do in this next book is to really think about how do certain emotions in certain areas of the body really do um, manifest as disease. And I'll, I'll give you just one small example of that. You know, for a woman with breast cancer, now think about the location. Think about right next to the heart and lungs. Think about something like, um, you know, having grief, which we say in Chinese medicine affects the lungs. You know, if you look at anyone who has experienced grief, and I'm going to over-exaggerate here, but, you know, the chest kind of collapses in. Our breathing becomes more shallow. There's a way that we, we can really visually see how grief is affecting someone in their lungs. And so now consider that a woman, for instance, has a tumor in the right upper quadrant of, 
you know, her breast, which is, you know, so close to the lungs. I mean, is there a connection, for instance, to something that happened? Now, on the right side, we say in Chinese medicine is yang, so there's a masculine component to it. So did something happen that would elicit grief from a male person in that woman's life? So that might seem all airy-fairy and, well, we're going to make loose connections, but I think in a very real way, these metaphors do play out in our bodies, right? And how, where we manifest something. So I think it's not an either or thing. I mean, and I'm willing to have a foot in both camps. I mean, I I absolutely have one very strong footing in environmental medicine and I'm wanting and ready and willing to talk about how we're exposed to environmental toxicants and the role of that in carcinogenesis. But on the other hand, you know, why does it affect one person and not the other? You know, what are these individual differences and how do we understand those? And I think that's definitely more about a person's experience, their relationship to stress, history of trauma, all these things. And that really is what sets the stage. Right. I mean, you're really looking at the holistic approach. There's just not one reason that we get cancer. There's so many factors. Right. Absolutely. I heard you say that now that you're in remission, you still make choices as someone who is living with cancer. Mm-hmm. So I I can totally relate to that because I'm very regimented and my family sometimes says, oh, you're, you know, you're being neurotic, you're being crazy. But to me, I have to work harder than the average person. That's just my mindset. You have that problem too. Yeah. So I, I was just curious what you, what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. You know, so there's a couple different things that people can, can take away from hearing the word remission. One of those is, okay, I'm done. I'm going to go back to life the way that it used to be. And that, for one, does not work for me, right? Because I feel like that you totally missed the boat. There, there, there was no opportunity to be empowered, to change things, to live, again, a better, stronger life on the other side of whatever this diagnosis is. And that, of course, is not, that doesn't pay any heed to all the lifestyle factors that we can be working on, the things that you identify and talk about on your podcast. So. From my perspective, and it's a bit of a razor's edge, I grant you that, but I would much rather consider myself a cancer patient for the rest of my life and wake up every day thinking about that because at least for me, that keeps me motivated and it keeps me making those choices that I need to do to take care of myself. So I'm totally okay with having that constant reminder. The other option is to, again, feel like remission, I'm done not really make any good lifestyle changes, and then to be blindsided in the future where something comes up again. And it may not even be cancer. It could be another health issue. So for me, as I feel like by having that razor's edge of maintaining a partial identity of being a cancer patient, right? I still live my life. I still, I don't, it's not like I walk into a party and say, hey, I'm a cancer patient, right? So I have to have a good, healthy boundary surrounding this. But at the same time, I don't want to lose that grip because I want to be able to every day know that I am making really good choices that are empowering my health. In the end, I don't know if I'm making a difference in the long run, right? I could just be deluding myself. But on a day-to-day basis, I am feeling empowered by the choices that I'm making. And to me, that's all that matters. It's not necessarily the outcome of where I'm headed for this. Now, I'd like to think that I'm making good choices, which are going to support a good outcome. But more than, than anything, it's me taking a stand and saying, I'm making these choices because I'd rather do that than live in fear every, every day. 
So I'm choosing the empowerment course. So that's why I do it the way. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And you talk about not really loving, you know, saying that you're a cancer survivor. And it's interesting. I hear that a lot from people. For some reason, it doesn't bother me um, because I think we're all surviving something. True. But I'm just curious your perspective on that and what your what your reasoning is. Yeah. So the one the one thing I would say about that specific terminology of cancer survivor is it, it can it's subtle. I'll grant you that. But it, it can have a way where it it could suggest like this is something that again happened in the past and I'm over it. And it has this little inkling of almost like a victim mentality, you know, as a cancer survivor. To me, I think of someone, for instance, who has diabetes. Now, they call themselves a, a diabetic patient, right? And they have to monitor their diet and their lifestyle and exercise for the rest of their life because, you know, they've blown through all their card points by the time when they, you know, type 2 diabetes sets in. And so they're a diabetic patient. And that's kind of analogous to how I think about cancer. I feel like it. I think we may get to this point with emerging immunotherapies and how we're really learning more and more about terrain and epigenetics, that it may be very possible that cancer just becomes something that you manage as opposed to up this black and white, you know, you have it or you don't have it. You know, practically everyone walking around in the West, Western world either has precancerous cells or they might actually have cancerous cells that have not been identified yet. Cancer is this process that kind of ebbs and flows in our body. So, to me, to consider myself a cancer patient is just this very subtle mental mindset shift that it's just something that I'm always working on because I know I have the propensity for it. That's it. And I don't want to, again, over-identify with it. You know, cancer survivor is not a bad word. It just, for me, it definitely has a little bit of that sentiment of um, it's something that happened to me. It's in the past. I'm done through with it. and I'm going to move on with life, which to me is like that doesn't, doesn't just capture that razor's edge that at least I feel like I need to cultivate the right choices day in and day out. Well, I know you wrote another book called Cancer and EMF Radiation, and I haven't had anyone on yet to talk about EMF radiation. So um, I know we're going off topic a little, but just curious, you know, what are some ways that that we can protect ourselves? I mean, 5G is now out and, and we're just surrounded. Yeah. Um, so that was my first book. And then my, my, my introduction to writing and publishing. Um, and the reason why I chose that topic, because it seemed like the elephant in the room, just seemed like something that really no one was talking about. And so the, the thesis of that book is that non-native electromagnetic fields are indeed a potent human carcinogen. So I present four corroborating lines of evidence that suggest that that is the case. And you're absolutely right. We are swimming in a sea of electromagnetic fields that are non-native, which means we never evolved with these with these fields. And there is definitely the concern that not just cancer, but they are posing a risk to our health from many different on many different levels. And although I would agree that five G, this recent rollout, is just uh, problematic. What, what I would say is it's it's in some ways no more problematic than everything else we've been exposed to prior to that. And so I really believe that the central problem when it comes to electromagnetic fields is proliferation. It's one stacked on top of the other. It's not like the 4G network went away when we rolled out the 5G. It's one on top of the other. It's now the smart appliances that are showing up in our home. It's the Wi-Fi that's constantly on day and, and night. It's the cell phone that's in your pocket. It's the cordless phone by your bedside stand, it's it's all of those things. It's just the increasing amount of them that we are being exposed to. 
And But to make a long story short, or maybe a long story longer in this case, there are absolutely things you can do to lower your risk. And that's really all I'm encouraging people to do. What I'm saying is if you've been diagnosed with cancer, there's a lot of stories that you'll have to read about to learn. And this is just one story. And um, if you are being proactive and you are thinking about all the different things I am being exposed to, this is just one element of that. And it's something that you do have a lot of control over. I mean, if you live out in a rural area and you're by a farm field where they're spraying pesticides and herbicides, you may not have much control over that, but you do have control over the technology that you bring into your home, into your life and how you use them. And there are definitely better choices you can make. Now, I'm not a Luddite. I'm clearly talking to you right now from my laptop, but my laptop is plugged in through ethernet and I'm not using any Wi-Fi. So, you know, and I detail all these different strategies in the book that uh, you could in some ways and have your cake and eat it too, but you also have to be very mindful of how you're doing it choices that you make. And there's some things that, you know, I just don't do. Like I, I, I have a cell phone, but it's in airplane mode 95% of the time. I frankly just turn it on to check messages every now and again. And I answer most of those messages on my desktop. So I don't walk around with it operational in my pocket the way that most people do most of the time. I certainly, and this is what, oh, this kills me seeing women take their operational cell phone and just shove it in their bra right next to their breast tissue. I mean, it's just floors me. I know. Um, and and so and then also seeing children using it increasingly. So what I'll just say to kind of wrap up this this idea is, you know, we're all lab rats right now. We don't really know what the the long term effects of these really truly going to be. The thing I'm most worried about right now is the increase of glioblastoma with cell phone use. That to me seems like that's a one to one, and that's going to be. I would say in the next decade or two, that's going to be a probably as a clear association as smoking and lung cancer. The only difference is right now we're on the front end of the research with terms of cell phone use and, and glioblastoma. And with something like smoking, we're on the tail end of that research. I mean, it's self-evident that smoking causes lung cancer. No one would refute that. Uh, but that we don't, but we could say that because we have the benefit of looking in hindsight, right? So my thing is. There's enough of an inkling in the research, and I presented this book, that to me, I feel like it warrants applying the precautionary principle because we don't know how the story is going to end yet. So I'm really curious. I know there's just so many things, but these pendants that people sell, I mean, is there any validity to that? I get this question every time I lecture on this topic. You do. So my very diplomatic short answer is, I don't know. So when I did my research for this first book, I bought all these meters so I can walk around my house and in office and check all these different things. I mean, th- this isn't something, this is physics, right? This isn't, doesn't take, it takes the guesswork out of it when I can walk around with my meter and see what I'm being exposed to in terms of radiation. What I can tell you is I have a number of these devices and either people send them to me or I get them and they don't change anything that my meter tells me. Now, might they influence my own energy field and how I relate to that negative EMF exposure? Possibly, but I would not choose to use those things at the expense of the tried and true methods that I discuss in my book, which are you know, basically mitigating EMF, try to reduce your exposure to devices, you know, shielding them, that's a possibility too. There's ways you can shield yourself from different kinds of EMF, um, avoiding them. So to me, it's like, it's, it's, you have to, if you choose to use any of these little good luck charms, you will want to do that on top of everything else that makes sense from a physics standpoint. 
So both basically. But what I don't want people doing is to stick one of these back on their cell phone and feel, I'm perfectly safe now. I'm just going to use my cell phone as much as I did before. I, to me, I think yeah, that, that's a missed opportunity. Yeah. I always throw the phone away from my kids. Like if they're laying down, you know, on the couch and they have it right next to their head, I yeah. get it way away because it, it, it drives me nuts. You know, it's, yeah. it's tough with the kids. So just before we get to random round, any last advice for someone listening who has just been diagnosed with cancer? You know, I think one thing is take your time. You probably have more time than you need. It, there's that initial shock when you've been diagnosed, which is hard to shake off. I totally get it. I mean, I was in that place, as you know, as well. But really take your time, gather your information, find your team, right? Find your community. And finally, like we discussed before, you know, come at it from a really both head and heart centered place. You know, try to get an intuitive space of what makes sense. You're not going to do that within even a week's time. That's going to, it's going to be a few weeks to really figure out all that out and to make that, you know, really pronounced. So, you know, get a second opinion in almost, not would say all, in most instances, cancer by the time it's diagnosed has been growing for years, if not decades, right? It's been there a long time. And as much we can just jump into that fear place of let's get it cut out or radiated immediately. I would just say, just take a step back, breathe, and really kind of figure out what this means for you how you're going to, again, cultivate a mindset of growth on the other side of what has happened to you. And I think if you do that, you are fundamentally going to get a better outcome than someone who does not do that. And this isn't, it isn't magic. It's not rocket science. This is just someone who takes the time to get into that space, will make fundamentally different decisions than someone who does not. They are going to line themselves up with whatever they need for their healing in a much more efficient way than someone who doesn't take the time to do that. So that'd be my answer. Perfect. Thank you. So you're ready for random round? Yes. Let's, let's go for it. Fill in the blank. Freedom to you is. You're going to already know the answer to this from, from me talking this last 30, 40 minutes, but uh, freedom to me is choice. The last show you binged and loved. I don't really binge watch any show, but currently I'm watching The Rings of Power on Amazon Prime. So I'm very much appreciating enjoying that. <laughs> when you're feeling afraid, what do you do? Uh, I snuggle up to my wife. If you can have a one-hour discussion with someone past or present, who would it be and why? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, as much as I love to list a lot of historical figures that I would get a lot out of, um, I don't know if this works in the time machine principle, but I would probably get the most benefit talking to my seven-year-old self. Wow. That's a good one. I haven't heard that one yet. What is your favorite go-to snack? Um, probably farm milk. We live right across from a dairy, so we get the best Jersey milk that, boy, you can just drink it and it's rich <laughs> and it, uh, that can satiate you. Yeah, that works great for me. What is one simple thing that brings you joy? Uh, hugs. Yeah. Receiving and giving hugs. What's on your nightstand? It's typically whatever sci-fi or fantasy novel I'm reading. I thought you'd have essential oils and all these different things. <laughs> That's, yeah. Those are in the drawer, but tiny herbs. <laughs> it's funny because one of the changes I made after my diagnosis is I had a doctor who in his wisdom said to me, you know, get out of your head and stop reading so much nonfiction. So I said, all right. So from that moment forward, I only read fiction at night. <laughs>
what's your favorite form of exercise? I really love parkour, if you know what that is. No, I don't. Yeah, it's it started in France, but it's this kind of fitness of kind of it's like ninja training. It's like evading obstacles and how to vault and crawl and roll and all these kinds of things. It's like an American Ninja Warrior type uh, form of exercise. Oh, neat. I'm going to look that up. Mm-hmm. What's one thing you're really grateful for in your life right now? Right now, it's being in my new office. Earlier this year, I moved into a new clinic space and I have uh, this beautiful office, which I'm doing all my writing and speaking from now. So um, yeah, I just love it. It just feels like home. Got great light and got all this beautiful wood around me. So yeah. And how can people find you and learn more? Uh, probably the easiest place is through my website. It's just brandonlagreca.com. That's where you'll see links to all my books in their various forms, whether it be ebook, print, um, audiobook, and such. I also, my blog is there. And if you want to just go straight to reading my blog, kind of what I've been thinking about, that's just empoweredpatientblog.com. Um, and if you sign up for my newsletter on my website, I only send one out once a month. It just has my most recent blog and whatever I'm thinking about. It's really short, but that's usually the best place for people to get a, and to get a hold of me as well. Great. Well, Brandon, thank you so much. This was just so informative and I really appreciate your time. Yeah. And thank you for everything you're doing, Haley. It's, it's shows like this that um, kind of help spread the message and get people to think differently about these issues. And so um, I appreciate it. Without you, I wouldn't have a voice. So thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. Mm-hmm. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so will really help this podcast get noticed and will help us to inspire more people. And remember, the sky is the limit when you take your power back when it comes to your health.